And uh, welcome if you're joining us here or if you're joining us online. Uh, it's good to have you. If we've not met before, my name is James. I'm on staff here uh, at the church. Now, this past summer, uh, our, our elders, our pastoral leadership, we took a class together through Maritime Christian College on healthy church leadership. Um, and so it was myself, our, our lead pastor, Greg, or Greg Nicholson, Peter Boyer, and Roland Everohai. We were all taking the class together. And uh, it was a good class. We learned lots. It kind of gave us some ideas and things we need to focus on moving forward. Now, at the end of that, um, Greg, myself, and Peter, we were uh, having a conversation one day. And if you know our lead pastor at all, if you've spent any time with him, you quickly learn that this guy is competitive about almost everything that he does. Like everything turns into, it's like, I've got to beat you at this. I've got to be the best at it. We were actually like the, the elders were away this past week and it, there was a rock throwing competition because we, we needed to settle who could throw a rock uh, the furthest. Now, um, Peter, myself, and Greg, we were all together and Peter happened to divulge his final mark in the course. And Greg had to let Peter know that he had uh, outperformed him in this academic exercise. And so Greg is going, well, I got this mark. I guess I'm smarter. I guess the, the professor likes me more. And he's just kind of going on a little bit, giving it to Peter. And I wasn't going to say anything. I was just, I wasn't going to divulge my mark, but he kept going. And so I, I'm not up here to say I did better than Greg, but I'll just say this. When I shared my mark, Greg quickly stopped bragging. Uh, it put an end to that. Now, he, here's the thing. Sometimes when you get a mark in something, especially maybe it's related to the Bible, or it's like, oh man, listen to how much scripture this person has memorized. We get this idea like, oh man, they must be way more spiritual um, and, and a better disciple than someone. I'm not saying that that that's what's going on here, because actually what you find is the measure of our faith. It's not found solely in what we know or what we say. Like, as disciples, our goal is not merely to know things about God, but that we would know God in relationship and our lives would flow out of that relationship with God. And so our faith isn't uh, relegated merely to the, the realm of thinking and talking about God. And thinking and talking about God and singing about God, it's good, it's beneficial. It, it can instruct us, it can inform us, it can comfort us, it can inspire us and strengthen us. But, but there's more to our spiritual lives than that. Uh, Jamie Snyder, he's a Christian author. He said, the Christian life is far less about passivity than it is about activity. Ours is a faith defined by activity, which is simply a reflection of the nature and character of of God. And so what he's saying is like, God is, is not a God that just does nothing. He's an active God. He's involved in our lives and in this world. That's why we pray and, and hope that he's going to be uh, interacting, coming into our lives and at work. Now, with this in mind, I want to go to today's text, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. And here, Paul writes this, you are God's children whom he loves, so try to be like him. Now I'm using the New Century version today. Um, your translation, if you're using something different, and I, I do like the word, it might say, try to imitate him. And I, I want you to keep that word in your mind this morning, imitate. And so verse two, live a life 
of, sorry, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice to God. Now, Charles Spurgeon, he, he was a, a British preacher, he said this, We must not be satisfied with feeding the soul by meditation, but rise up from the banquet and use the strength we have gained. Sitting at the feet of Jesus must be succeeded by following in the footsteps of Jesus. And so this is his eloquent way of saying, like, we don't just think and talk about God. When we do these things, it's for a reason, so that we can go out and, and live a life just as Jesus lived. Now, this is what we find, is that a disciple doesn't merely meditate about God. A disciple must imitate the character of God. And if you look up the word imitate in pretty much any dictionary, you're going to find something like this. To follow or endeavor to follow a model or example. To mimic or impersonate someone. To have the appearance or likeness of somebody. Now, what does Paul say in verse 2? The way we can imitate God or follow his example is actually by following the example of Jesus Christ. We imitate God by imitating what we read and see Jesus has done. And so Hebrews 1 verse 3, it tells us this. The sun reflects the glory of God and shows exactly what God is like. And so it's like Jesus is God in the flesh. He shows us how God would interact in normal everyday relationships with others. And Jesus, he, he, he wants us to follow him. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, he says, come follow me and I will make you fish for people. And so what he's saying is that if we're going to commit to discipleship, we need to follow Jesus. We need to learn from him. We need to be changed by him and do what he does. Now, this past summer, I was at Canoe Cove Christian Camp on uh, Prince Edward Island. I was helping out at a camp there for uh, a few days. And it was just a reminder, I'm kind of getting older because like the, the next morning, I, I, never, I didn't remember it ever being so rough getting up. Um, and if you've been at camp, you, the first night is always the worst, especially if you're in a boy's cabin. It's just terrible um, because they don't sleep. They talk the whole time. And so I like, I get up, I go upstairs. I'm like, thank goodness somebody has brewed coffee already. I get a cup, I pour it. I take that beautiful first sip, which is like the greatest gift of God in the morning, that first sip of coffee. And like, as I'm doing this, there's a woman there. Her name is Joyce Doyle. She was like the cook when I went to that camp as a kid. And she was back for this week. And she, she's known my father for years. She's known me since I was probably like that tall. And so she watches me just take that sip of coffee and she goes, you're a lot like your father. It's like all that from a cup of coffee from that first sip. But here's the thing, it's natural for children to resemble their parents. Like people always tell me that uh, my son Seth, he's about to turn 10, but that he is my mini-me, that he looks like me, he talks like me, he acts like me, he's got the same sense of humor. So it's, it's natural for children to resemble their parents. And there's times where you can just look at somebody and you just go, I know who you are related to. Maybe it's the way they look. Maybe it's their behavior. There's, there's family traits. Now, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, 
it's not just that we are forgiven our sin, but scripture would say, no, God goes beyond that. He adopts you as his son or daughter. He promises you an inheritance. And so we have to understand that we are a a child of God, that we belong to the family of God. This is why we use family language a lot in the church. And one of the things that Paul is getting at in this text is that God's family demonstrates certain characteristics. Like sometimes I'll do something and my wife will, will say to me, you're becoming a lot like your father. And she means it kind of as an insult. I understand that. But I'll go, it could be worse. Um, now, here's the thing. If you want to know what you're going to look like when you get older, look at your parents. Like, you're going to become like one of them over time. It just will. And like, I, I know children who've been adopted, who it's like over time, they become a lot like their adoptive parents. It kind of rubs off on them. They become like their parents as they spend time with them. And so this is kind of one of these things that happens in the church. As we spend time with God through his word and worship and the the family and all of these things that scripture calls us to do, we become more like our father or we should. And so Paul is reminding us of our identity. You are a beloved child of God. You're you're not just a number to God. It's like, ah, one more saved. You are a child. And Paul is going to get at this, is that your identity should inform your behavior. Now, Jesus says this kind of in Matthew 5, 48. He says, so you must be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Now, there's the reality that he's talking about, like if we want to enter into the kingdom of God, that we, we do have to be perfect. We do have to be sinless. But God does this through Jesus Christ. He makes us holy and righteous through uh, Jesus' work on the cross. But also, this is kind of one of those things. Is like as children, we should aspire to be like God, our father, holy. And so, A disciple represents who God is to the world. I want you to look at that word represent. It's re-present. Like it's this idea, you're presenting who God is to the world. And so as God's child, we should resemble God our Father. And we do this by imitating him. And we don't just do it with words, but with the way we live our lives. And the word imitate, it's an imperative it's an action. It's something you have to do. Like, here's an example. This past summer, I'm not sure why, but my daughter Jane, uh, she's, she was three, one day we were on the back deck and she found a stick that had fallen from a tree. And she just picks it up and she puts it down like a cane and she hunches over and starts to hobble around like this. And she goes, I'm Grammy Dorothy. Now, you don't know who Grammy Dorothy is, but that's her great-grandmother who lives on PEI. Um, and that was Jane's impersonation of her. That's, that's her imitating her grandmother. Her grandmother doesn't use a cane, she doesn't walk with a hobble, and she doesn't talk like that, but th- that's Jane's imitation of her grandmother. And you, 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 you have to do something in order to imitate someone. Now, here's the thing. Why do we imitate people. Well, yeah, sometimes it's, it's to get a laugh out of other people. But oftentimes, it's you look at somebody, and you look at their life, and you're going, okay, they, they seem to know a better way than I do. They've, they've got this figured out. And so, for example, like kids will look at a superhero or a princess and go, man, Batman has it figured out. He's wealthy, he's got cool gear, and he fights bad guys. And so that's why they dress up as, a, as Batman. Or maybe it's like Cinderella. She's got a castle. She's got 
I think it's Prince Charming that goes with her. I'm not sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but it's like, man, I, I want to be like Cinderella and the dress like the princess. Now, as adults, we, we kind of we stop wearing costumes for the most part, I hope. Um, but we still play that imitation game. Like, here's the thing. It's like you, you look at somebody's lives like, man, look at the car they drive. They appear successful. I want to be like them. Or you look on, on that highlight reel known as Instagram where they're giving you the highlight of their lives, not the whole story. And you're like, man, they seem to know what they're doing. Okay, I'm going to try and be like them. And so we imitate what they're doing in hopes of experiencing the success that they appear to have. And so we, we imitate those in hopes of experiencing what they are experiencing. Now, humans are formed for imitation. Like, to a certain degree, you're imitating someone or something in some way. Like, even those guys are like, not me, I chart my own path, I'm a lone wolf. It's like, no, you're not. You're following every one of those other guys who went before you who said the exact same thing. Now, Paul, he's going, you're going to imitate something. You just will. And I'm going to give you the absolutely highest standard to imitate. God. There's, there's no other being, no other thing as great as God. And he's going, like, this is the best thing that you could model, the best person you can model your life after. You're not going to find anyone or anything better or more worthy of imitation And so I want you to understand, you were created to imitate God in many ways. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, God says, or it says, God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. He created them male and female. And so in many ways, it would just be natural for you to imitate the character of God in your life because you are his image bearer. And we do this by living lives of sacrificial love, just like we saw Jesus do in scripture. Now, Paul doesn't just say imitate God and leave it there. He actually kind of gives us those character traits or what what would our lives be marked with if we're imitating who God is. And so Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul writes, But there must be no sexual sin among you or any kind of evil or greed. Those things are not right for God's holy people. Also, there must be no evil talk among you, and you must not speak foolishly or tell evil jokes. These things are not right for you. Instead, you should be giving thanks to God. You can be sure of this. No one will have a place in the kingdom of Christ and of God who sins sexually or does evil things or is greedy. Anyone who is greedy is serving a false God. Now, what I know like we read that and you're like, oh, there's a lot going on there. What I want you to take from this, what Paul's saying is that God's family lives differently than the world. God's family lives differently than the world. Now, like, we've got some kids in here, um, we are teenagers, and have you ever wondered, like, why do mom and dad care so much about the things that I do? Why are they always on my case about what I wear and how I talk and all of that? One reason, uh, probably the primary reason, I hope, is that they love you. They care about how your life is going to turn out. But, but here's the other thing. You learn this when you become a parent. What your children do, in many ways, is a reflection upon you um, and who you are. So it's like, why, why does mom want me to wear a clean shirt? Why, why can't I just wear this one that has food all over it? Well, it's like, mom doesn't want the world to think she doesn't do laundry and take care of you and put clean clothes on you. Why, why does dad get on my case about the language I use or, or things like that? Well, dad doesn't want the world to think that's the type of language that, that is used in the home. It's, it's a reflection on them. As a child, you were a reflection of who your parent is. And so we have to understand, as 
God's children, we represent and we reflect who God is to the world. As we confess that we are a Christian, people are getting ideas about who Jesus is and who God is based off the way that we live. And so what Paul's saying is our job is to imitate the character of God to the world. And, and believers, your life is going to look different than, than a non-believer's life. And Paul is calling for holy living in the areas of sexuality, speech, and morality. And it, it looks very countercultural today, just as it did when Paul wrote these words, because most of the people that Paul writes to are Gentiles. Um, so they're, they're not coming from the Jewish faith. They're, they're coming from different religions. And so they approached kind of sexuality much differently than the Jewish people or the Christian church did. And so like for them, the idea of sexual sin didn't really occur to them. They were pretty casual with that whole thing, like what they did with their bodies. For example, most men, they, if they were married, they had another woman on the side. They had a mistress. In Corinth, the temples were staffed by hundreds of priestesses who were sacred prostitutes and whose earnings went to the upkeep of the temple. And so like the Greeks, they see no issue in building temples to their God with the proceeds of prostitution. It's like, how did you fund this? Well, the prostitutes helped. It's an interesting building campaign strategy. It's not one we're ever going to explore here, but it seemed to work for them. Um, now, Paul, why does he say this? Because he knows that what the body does cannot be separated from what the mind thinks. And you know this, like you're not a mindless drone that just goes about your day without thinking. You, you think about almost everything that you do. And that's why evil talk, foolish speaking, and jokes are prohibited by Paul. Because what Paul knows is that what's in our mind and on our mind is often um, what's coming out in our lives. And so Paul's not prohibiting jokes and humor. He's not saying like, don't ever tell a joke and have fun. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, be careful about the subject of your conversation. Be careful about what the subject of your jokes are. Because like words are not just words. The Bible never takes that approach. The Bible would say words have the power to heal, to change, to damage, and to kill. And so Paul's getting at this. Christians, you need to be very careful to guard your integrity and public reputation because public sins do dishonor God. Who we are is a reflection to the world of who God is. And so in contrast to crude joking and foolish talk, Paul says, you know what? Thanksgiving is a language that we use. And if you look at the message in Ephesians 5.4, it would say like, we, we don't use crude jokes or foolish talk. We have a better use for language than that. Thanksgiving is our dialect. And I think what Paul is going like, let's be a people of Thanksgiving. And scripture gets at this is because in order to be thanking God, a person of Thanksgiving, you need to think about the things that God has given you and how he's, he's blessed you and how he's taken care of you. And like, we don't often stop and do and, and think about this. Like we, we, we're pretty general, but we go, thank you, God, for for creating the world. Thank you, God, for sending your son to forgive me. Thank you for these things. But it's like, think about it. Like, he saved you. He's placed his spirit inside of you. He empowers you for ministry. But like, there's, there's those things. But then, the, like, keep going. 
Think about where we get to live in the world and how good it is. Think about maybe where you live, uh, the the job that he's provided you with, the, the roof over your head, the food on your table, the relationships, your family, and just even a church family that you get to belong to. And you start thinking, man, God has been good. And as you think about God's goodness towards you, it leads you to praise. And as you praise God, it's just natural that it would come out of your life that you would live live a life of gratitude towards God, going, no, this is a God that is worth imitating and devoting my life to and reflecting his goodness in the world. And so what is in our mind and on our mind? That's going to come out in our life. And several times in Scripture, Paul says, be renewed by um, the, the power of the Spirit. Like as the Spirit dwells in us, as we cooperate with the Spirit's work, our, our attitudes and our affections are changed and our actions become more Christ-like. And so Paul, he, he's making it very clear that there's characteristics that mark the difference between believers and non-believers. That God's family has certain traits. So we have to look at our lives and, and even using those markers that Paul's given, like am I Christ-like or am I more like the culture, and to, be, to obey God is to offer him our highest form of worship. To disobey is to choose another less worthy God in his place. Now, as I said, when we read verses 3 to 5, some of us might have got a little nervous, like a little shifting in our seats, because some of those things aren't um, comfortable. And, and even if you're like, I don't really care what it says, you might look at that and go, man, the Christian ethic is so narrow. It doesn't allow for much fun um, and if you look at what scripture teaches on a whole, it doesn't really line up with a lot of our culture's beliefs and values. Now, I've, I've sat with um, people several times, and they would say something like this, the church needs to get with the times. I've read in com- countless online like comment sections where somebody would say, the church needs to realize it's 2021. And what they're saying is culture has progressed in its beliefs, its desires, its attitudes, and so the church needs to as well. And I'll say this, if we were trying to do church like they were trying to do it back in the year 40 AD, yeah, it it wouldn't work in our culture. There's ways, yes, the church needs to um, be relevant to the culture and, and work that way. But here's the thing, to accept all the beliefs and attitudes and desires of the culture in order to be relevant, that, the church has never made it that's goal, a capital C church. And what I would say is that um, we're leaving a time and, and a place and it's, it's been a weird time where it's like the Christian values have largely defined the culture. And most people agreed upon it. But kind of we're shifting away from that. And Christian values are, are becoming countercultural again, more and more. Now, what we've seen is that churches in our times, when they're trying to be uh, relevant to the culture, they actually become irrelevant to the culture. And they, they, they cease to be able to speak truth into people's lives. And they're the ones that actually begin to shrink and close their doors. And so what I'm saying is a commitment to biblical truth is what's going to keep the church relevant to people's needs. Think of it this way. If I went to my dentist and he started going like, you know what, you can eat all the sugar you want, all the acidic food, drink all the coffee you want. It's cool. 
do that. And if I said, like, I don't want to brush my teeth anymore, and I think flossing is dumb, and he was like, yeah, that's cool. Don't, don't do it. And he just kind of, like, endorsed and permitted and celebrated all of these things. He would quickly cease to be relevant in my life. Why would I bother going to a guy that's just going to tell me exactly what I desire? I enjoy brushing my teeth and flossing, just for the record. This is an illustration. Just go with me on it. Um, but, like, he wouldn't be speaking truth. And because he didn't speak what I needed to hear, my teeth would rot out. I'd have a horrible smile. Um, and so he, what I'm getting at is this. The world needs a church that speaks truth. It doesn't need one that endorses or permits or celebrates sin. And he, we have to get this view that God's commands, his, their, their parameters and standards, they're not there to restrict us, but they're like guardrails that guide us into the fullness of life. And wouldn't it make sense that our creator would just know what is best when it comes to those things like sexuality and, and, and speech and morality? These things that will help us thrive. And we have to look at God's word and realize that it's, it's a sure guide for living in an unsure world. And so God has placed these parameters on our lives so that we can live and really live. And Jesus, what does he say? I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so God's family is going to approach most aspects of life differently than the world does. And so if you are a Christian, a disciple, you need to decide, who am I going to imitate? Am I going to imitate God, my Father, the author of life, or what I see going on in the world? And we have to go, okay, which one actually works out when you play it to the, its natural conclusion? Where does it leave me? Which one leads to life and flourishing? And like, if you, I, I just want you to be honest, like, has a rejection of God and his his word and his principles and his commands for us actually led to this beautiful utopia that secularism has tried to promise. I, I don't think so. Like, the, the world isn't exactly getting better or more safe as we go away from God's word. And so this is why Paul writes what he writes in the next section of the letter. Do not let anyone fool you by telling you things that are not true because these things will bring God's anger on those who do not obey him. So have nothing to do with them. In the past you were full of darkness, but now you are full of light in the Lord. So live like children who belong to the light. Light brings every kind of goodness, right living, and truth. Try to learn what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the things done in darkness which are not worth anything, but show that they are wrong. It is shameful even to talk about what those people do in secret, but the light makes all things easy to see. And everything that is made easy to see can become light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleep, arise from death, and Christ will shine on you. Now, remember how I was saying that the ancient world approached kind of sex much more casually than uh, the, the church did at that time. And what had happened was some of those beliefs had made their way into the church when Paul was writing this. And they were trying to convince others that some of these uh, sexual practices, these pagan sexual practices from the other religions, weren't going to harm their status in Christ. And so there was a group known as the Gnostics. And essentially they said, we have secret knowledge. And they were trying to tell people, you know what? It doesn't matter what you do with your body because the Gnostics said, you know what, uh, matter is evil, the spirit is good. If the spirit is good, it has value. If matter is evil, it has no value. Thus, 
if, if matter is of no value, it doesn't matter what you do with your physical body because it's not going to matter. In the end, it has no value. And so kind of um, allowed people to do whatever they wanted to do. It didn't matter what you did with your body. Only the spirit is what they taught. But then there were also those in the church who perverted the doctrine of grace. And Paul plays out their argument in Romans 8. Essentially, he, there would be people who are going, do you believe that God's grace is the greatest thing in the world? And a Christian would be like, absolutely, yes. And they, do you believe that God's grace is great enough to cover any sin? Absolutely, yes. And then this person would say this, well, let's not worry about sin because God's grace is great enough to cover every sin. In fact, the more that you sin, the more God uh, is able to use his grace and, and he receives glory. Praise God, let's go on sinning, essentially was their reasoning. Now, Paul goes, these type things, they're empty words. And a common deception throughout church history has been this idea that Christians can lead unrepentant, sinful lives and not suffer consequences. Like, this past week, I was scrolling through Facebook and somebody had shared an article, and the title was this, Four Sinners by Sinners, Church Pastored by Active Porn Star and Husband. And I was like, okay, that's gotta be satire. There's no way that that's true. And so I clicked on the article, and it wasn't satire. The article went on to say the church is led and pastored by an entrepreneur couple, one of whom is a porn star. The husband is pleased and sees no issue with his wife's participation in an industry that goes directly against God's word, an industry that's known for abusing women, men, children, and promoting sexual sex trafficking. And, And empty words still exist in the church today you'll still find them. And they make light of how we live in relation to God and sin. Empty words, they'll often promise short-term gain, but ignore long-term or eternal consequences. And so there's people coming at us, both from inside the church and outside of the church with empty words. And so if you're a a Christian, I I just want to encourage you, be very discerning about who you listen to. Even if they're going like, I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, I want you to be very discerning, that that you measure everything that is said against God's word. And even if they're going like, I've got a verse, no, measure it against the whole counsel of God's word, not just one verse. And so we have to be very careful not to line the scriptures up with the way we are already living or want to live, but to line our lives up with the truths of scripture. And so Paul's making these distinctions between those who are in the light and those who are not. There's this then, now, and theme. And he's saying to go back to living your old way, that's to, to live um, incongruently with your story. You've passed from darkness into light. Don't go back to the darkness. First John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Whoever says that he lives in God must live also, or must live as Jesus lived. So, like, you have to live in society. Like, you, you don't get to escape it. Jesus had to live in society. And Paul's, Paul's not saying, like, pull back and don't engage with it. But he's saying, don't engage in sin. As you do this, your job is to represent who God is to the world. And he's saying, we do this by walking in the light. And disciples, what we do is we show by our lives that the works of darkness are not of value. That we expose the darkness. Now, a couple weeks ago, I went down to our basement to put something on the shelf in the family room. And I was just so lazy that I didn't even 
flip on the light switch and which is like the epitome of laziness. But I was going like, I can navigate the dark. I know this room, but I just didn't realize that Seth and Jane, I was shocked. They didn't listen to us when we asked them to clean up their Lego. Um, And I found that in the dark with my bare feet and like just a painful, painful experience if you've never done that. But here's the thing, like had I just walked in the light, turned on the light, it would have exposed that threat And what Paul's kind of getting at is that there's darkness in the world. And as disciples, our job, our responsibility is to expose what's concealed in the darkness, to show that there's a better way. We expose the threats, the dangers, the lies that the enemy conceals in darkness and show that life God's way actually works, that it leads to flourishing. And as we do this, though, we need to remember what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 2, that we live like Jesus did, live a life of sacrificial love. And so, As we expose the darkness, our job is not to point fingers at people and condemn them, but to win them over with love, showing them a better way, making every effort to see heaven be filled to capacity. Jamie Snyder, again, he writes, the motivation for speaking honestly about sin should never be condemnation, but restoration. Our God didn't ignore our sin, and he didn't just look the other way. We follow a God who started a difficult conversation about our sin, and it began this way. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So as God's children, we don't just meditate about him. We imitate him. And as we follow Jesus, we remember that the message that he's given us, the gospel, is not this one of condemnation, but of redemption and reconciliation with God our Father.